I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 19th of July 2011. For newcomers, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, help yourself to all the audios which are there for free download. And remember too the, that uh, all the sites you see listed have transcripts in English and for print up as well. And you can go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu for transcripts in other languages. And uh, I don't know what, we are lost the connection at the very beginning of the broadcast, so I'm trying to catch up in a hurry. So for those who want to keep me going, you can always purchase the books and discs I have for sale at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. And from the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can use a personal check or an international postal money order from the post office or send cash, or you can use PayPal. Uh, you can use the donation button you'll see in the com site and then follow it up with an email with name, address, and order. I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, Western Union, MoneyGram, and PayPal once again. And remember, straight donations are awfully welcome in these times of what they call austerity, which is to reinflation and devaluation of everybody's cash. But that's the world we're living in now. Everything is planned this way, and most folk can't believe that. They want to still think that there's politicians just fighting and struggling along, and we watch the pantomime forever as your parents did before them and their parents before them too. And politicians put on sometimes quite a good show. They're actually better in some countries than others. In Britain, they tend to do a lot of booing and yelling and acting like children at school. But at least it's a lot of hand-waving and it's, it's kind of entertaining. Uh, in the U.S., it's a bit quieter, more subdued. But uh, you can take your pick from the different countries. They should really put a, give them Oscars, I think, once in a while just for politicians to see who's the best one. And another one for the script writers because they're the real guys uh, that get the message across. Uh, politicians and prime ministers just to read off their scripts because uh, they, they don't know what's going on half the time. The advisors are the ones to, who know. They're kind of like managers. They manage you. It's like being in, in a rock group. You don't even know where you're going half the time. But the manager's got all your passports ready and the tickets ready and so on, and you jump from one plane to one plane to the next plane and so on. That's how it's really done. But it's a good show for the public, and they definitely sort of believe in it. We love to believe in fiction. Even when the data and the effects of what they're talking about come to be absolutely opposite of what they're chatting about, we still want to believe that somehow we can change them if we just raise our voices like a hymn, you know, or a psalm, and all sing together, but nothing works that way because above them there's bosses 
And above your governments, there's bigger bosses. And uh, the big bosses know where they're going with the world plan. They've published it in their own books over the many, many years. And uh, they will not turn back, no matter how many hymns or pleadings you give to them. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and talking about how things are planned. We're living living through a big agenda, big business plan, and uh, we can see that we're all being tied up together in our our own lifetimes. It was happening in your parents' lifetime too, and long before them, because, uh, as I say, Carol Quigley did document the ambitions of the group based primarily in London, uh, which eventually got a branch in New York and across the rest of the old British Empire, And uh, even when they pulled out of those countries, the the old empire countries, they always left the system pretty much the same as Britain. That was part of the deal. They copied the system of supposedly uh, a democratic institution. But also they left the Council on Foreign Relations in all different countries as well. And you can't get into the foreign services in certain countries like India unless you are a member of it. And it's the same pretty well everywhere else too. You can't get into the press at least any real newspaper, without being a member of it too. And you can't own any press without being a member of it as well. So these guys decided to take over the resources of the planet and redesign the world the way they thought it should be. Their left-wing organization, which was called the Fabian Socialists, worked through the working classes, basically, to achieve the same results. They both meet on the same road halfway down, and that's what's happened as well. In fact, if you look at the logo, uh, and the, the actual, they had a stained glass window made up for the founders of the Fabian Society. You'll see George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, and others uh, with a blacksmith's um, anvil bashing the world into shape with hammers, the way it should be shaped, you see. None of this meeting someone, fancying them, and having a child. No, no, that's just too haphazard. Eventually, the world they want to bring in is one where they'll authorize the, the right people to breed. And other ones will be sterilized, as if, they, if they're not sterilized already with the injections. But literally, they talked about all this a hundred years ago, and uh, they're implementing it all along, because you can't ask for volunteers, you understand, in these societies. And these societies have their members all throughout all governments. Uh, every prime minister and president has been a member of it since its inception, and we're on one agenda across the whole globe. They set up the United Nations as a front, once again, to bring in the system under the guise, as always, of helping people uh, across the planet. And yet the United Nations is one of the biggest private-public partnership deals out there. All the big uh, corporations are on board with it. And I might be touching on that tonight if I have time. But to show you how far back things go, just a little example, just a tiny example here. This article here is from uh, the, 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 the Commoners. I call it the Commoners magazine from Foreign Affairs. This is their Foreign Affairs magazine, which they give out to the public. And you must understand, if you go into their site, you'll see that they have a public version of things and a private member's uh, site as well. You can't get into, of course, without the, the coding, etc. So this is the stuff they give to the public. It's always a rah-rah for, for globalism. 
uh, site, you see. But they do tell you what's coming up, uh, you know, what countries are going to go to war with next and so on, because these guys helped to promote it. But this, this article says here, just as China promoted domestic growth by combining state intervention with private investment, it is now applying this same political strategy to countries across Africa. The results have been impressive, and the U.S. and others would do well to start paying attention. And this is by Deborah Brotigam. Brotigam. Very, very high schoolish, actually. Very, very upper schoolish. And uh, with a name like that, you can't fail in Britain. Absolutely. She's Associate Professor of International Development at American University and the author of The Dragon's Gift, The Real Story of China and Africa. Now, I've been talking before of how China has been given the go-ahead to be the next policeman of the world, because the same bunch in the 1930s said that they'd make it so after the U.S. failed. 1938, that was the, the annual meeting. Anyway, getting back to this article, uh, uh, we know that, we, that, so that the Chinese are buying up chunks of the U.S. Uh, and other countries as well, but they're really into Africa, a lot of Pacific islands as well. It says, last November, in the Egyptian resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh, Chinese Premier Wen Jiebio uh, announced a series of new pledges for Chinese assistance to African countries. It's assistance, understand, you know? Uh, it's just assistance to other countries. And in the process, made many observers in the West very uneasy. Westerners think they know what Africa needs to do in order to develop, which is liberalize markets, get prices right, promote democracy. Well, when they get it, I hope they give it to us. And they think they know what China is doing. They're offering huge no-strings-attached aid packages to resource-rich countries that prop up pariah regimes. But a closer look reveals a somewhat different story. Over the past few decades, China has managed to move hundreds of millions of its people out of poverty by combining state intervention with economic incentives to attract private investment. The kind of experimentation that the Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping once described as crossing the river by feeling the stones. Today, China is feeling the stones again, but this time it's economic engagement across Africa. Its current experiment in Africa mixes a hard-nosed but clear-eyed self-interest with lessons of China's own successful development, I guess through communism, and of decades of its failed aid projects in Africa. So it goes on and on about how rah, 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 it's wonderful, yada, 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 and all the money that's flowing in. And then in the same day that that comes out, obviously it's another member from the CFR uh, in uh, The Economist magazine instead this time, it says the Chinese in Africa. Africans are asking whether China is making their lunch or eating it. And in, in Zhu uh, Liangzhu, uh, gulps down Kenyan lager in a bar in Nairobi and recites a Chinese aphorism, uh, aphorism. One cannot step into the same river twice. So definitely both of these characters wrote the same thing, obviously, and they knew each other, plus in the same desk, CFR members. Anyway, it says, on his first trip three years ago, Mr. Zhu filled a whole notebook with orders and was surprised that Africans not only wanted to trade with him, but also enjoyed his company. I've been to many continents, but nowhere was the welcome as warm, he says. As strangers congratulated him on his homeland's high-octane engagement with developing countries, China is Africa's biggest trading partner and buys more than one-third of its oil from the continent. Its money has paid for countless new schools and hospitals. Locals probably told Mr. Zhu that China had done more to end poverty than any other country. Well, they've only started. They've only started. Because then you go into some of the history, understand? And um, I have talked about eugenicists before in the past, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs, and the Royal Society. They all go together, you understand. And uh, I've mentioned about Charles Darwin, 
and the fact that Darwin himself not only was a eugenicist and his father and grandfather before him, because his grandfather wrote the same book as he did eventually, um, with the same agenda. These families always have the same agenda for gen- after generations, like the bankers. But anyway, they only interbred with the Wedgwood family for generations, until eventually Charles, his second wife, after his first one died, she was a Wedgwood, he married his, his uh, mother's uh, sister, I believe it was. Anyway, um, they were practicing eugenicism back then, or eugenics. Francis Galton eventually married into them. Now, Francis Galton was a, a wonderful upper-class liar and a cheat because he came out with the IQ test, and it's been well documented today by people going over his papers that he fudged all the statistics he came out with. But even though he fudged them, he's such a hero, that they continue with the same test today uh, with the same snobbish appeal that it has to the elite to look down on the ones who are less endowed than themselves. Anyway, here's from Francis Galton who eventually married to the Darwins, along with the Huxleys, by the way, letter to the editor of the Times, June the 5th, 1873, for those who haven't read his letters. It says, a, a, a rejoinder to Galton's letter, and, and so on. And it says, um, Africa the, uh, for the Chinese, right? I'll, I'll repeat that for the harder thinking, 1873. Now, remember those two articles I just read, this rah-rah stuff from the Royal Institute of International Affairs, CFR, and The Economist, which is also members of the CFR, obviously. Africa for the Chinese, to the editor of The Times. Sir, in a few days, Sir Bartle Frere will return to England, and public attention will be directed to the east coast of Africa. I am desirous of availing myself of the opportunity to ventilate some speculations of my own, which you may perhaps consider of sufficient interest to deserve publication in The Times. My proposal is to make the encouragement of the Chinese settlements at one or more suitable places on the east coast or of, of Africa a part of our national policy. National policy. Now, we're going to understand that national policy was an international policy for world empire. Hmm? And they believe that the Chinese immigrants would not only maintain their position, but they would multiply and their descendants supplant the inferior Negro race. Now, doesn't that seem more like what's really going on here than this wonderful thing of giving gifts, say, to the people? I'll I'll say that again and again, because there's a lot of harder thinking people out there. He says, he says that, um, he says he'd like to encourage the settlement of the Chinese settlements at one or more suitable places on the east coast of Africa, a part of our national policy, in the belief that the Chinese immigrants would not only maintain their position, but they, they would multiply and their descendants supplant the inferior Negro race. I should expect the large part of the African seaboard, now sparsely occupied by lazy, palavering savages, living under the nominal sovereignty of the Zanzibar or Portugal, might in a few years be tenanted by industrious, order-loving Chinese, living either as a semi-detached dependency of China, isn't that interesting, semi-detached dependency of China, or else in perfect freedom under their own law, in the latter case, it would be similar to that of the inhabitants of Liberia in West Africa, the territory which was purchased 50 years ago and set apart as an independent state for the reception of freed Negroes from America. 
the opinion of the public on the real worth of the Negro race has halted between the extreme views which have long and been loud and loudly proclaimed. It refuses to follow those of the earlier abolitionists, but all the barbarities in Africa are to be traced to the effects of a foreign slave trade because travellers continually speak of similar barbarities existing in regions to which the slave trade has not penetrated. And he goes in but Captain Colombo has written a well-argued chapter on this matter in his recent volume. On the other hand, the opinion of the present day repudiates the belief that the Negro is an extremely inferior being because there are notorious instances of Negroes possessing high intelligence and culture, some of whom acquire large fortunes in commerce and others become considerable men in other walks of life. I'll be back with more on this after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix, just reading an article by Francis Galton, who eventually was part of the, the Darwin family, the Charles Darwin family, all eugenicists of course, and to show you how they studied every type of culture and peoples across the world. They didn't particularly like Scots and Irish and other people who fought against tyranny or who were allergic to tyranny, and that's what it is with the Celtic people, they've got kind of allergy to it, they, they, they kind of start sneezing when they feel it coming near. But uh, they had everybody categorized, their, their strong points, their weak points, all for economic purposes, you understand. And this letter to the Times in the 1870s was about uh, they should flood, basically, Africa with the Chinese and make it industrious because of all that mineral wealth there. And uh, they could be awfully good workers for this wonderful empire, which is now called globalism. Uh, when the U.S. helped to take it over along with Britain, using Britain's empire as the as a nucleus. It's already started, so why throw it out the window? You just simply build on the rest of it and create the United Nations and bring it in and pretend we've got democracy everywhere. Anyway, Darwin goes out, not Darwin, but Galton, uh, goes on about uh, all the, the, the negative traits that he claimed that the blacks had in Africa. And it wasn't possible. They weren't, had no they had too little intellect, he said, um, the, 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 no self-reliance, uh, self-control, etc., etc. Then he goes on to praise the Chinaman. The Chinaman is a, a being of another kind who is endowed with a remarkable aptitude for a high material civilization. He is seen to the, to the least advantage in his own country, where a temporary dark age still prevails, which has not sapped the genius of the race, uh, though it has stunted the development uh, uh, of each member of it by the rigid enforcement of an effet system of classical education which treats originality as a social crime. And it's true that individualism has never been encouraged in China. Um, now it's across the world because the United Nations also said the threat to civilization is the individual. Individualism must be eradicated. Hmm. But that's what you always get in totalitarianism. You've got to be all like the same cogs, and this, you know, all, all looking the same being the same way. All the bad parts of his character as his lying and servility spring from timidity due to an education that has cowed him and no treatment is better calculated to remedy that evil than location in a free settlement. The natural capacity of the Chinaman shows itself like a success with which notwithstanding his timidity he competes with strangers wherever he may reside. The Chinese immigrants possess the extraordinary instinct for political and social organization. They contrive to establish for themselves a 
uh, a police and internal government, and they give no trouble to their rulers so long as they're left to manage those matters by themselves. See, everybody was worked out. Every culture and, and ethnic group was worked out for their, their pros and cons by these uh, top economists and eugenicists long, long ago. And here they are, he is uh, basically advocating that they eventually breed out the, uh, the Africans and replace them with Chinese immigrants that would serve the, the, the national policy of Britain, which was an international policy, which is now called globalism. And we're living through the times where they're actually doing it. And the previous two articles are read from the Council on Foreign Relations magazine. Uh, foreign Affairs is a rah-rah thing for it. Isn't it wonderful the Chinese are taking over Africa? And then you have the one from uh, The Economist. Uh, Africans are asking whether China is making their lunch or eating it. Well, there you go. And for all you at the start, start of this broadcast, I said to you that, that you still think there's a fight going on when the politicians get up and yell at each other. Good luck to you. you you're literally you're just watching a pantomime because the whole future, the present was settled an awful long time ago and everything that happens in it. Going to read the books of Winston Churchill before the Second World War, he's saying in one of his great volumes there uh, that we'll have to go into uh, to Iraq because of the vast volumes of oil under its sand. Everything is worked out in advance. And it's not for national policies like we're going to get steal the oil of those guys and give it to the people here. No, it's we, the few, the, you know, the few is always the families that own everything, uh, will be owners of it all. That's what it's about. We're watching NATO now being used like a private army. And it is. And after they plunder the, and, and flatten countries, the IMF and the World Bank comes in uh, with all the, the, the big directors of the, the same old corporations and the top banks come in, and they just take over all the resources of the countries for peanuts. That's called piracy and plunder. But no one ever sees it for what it is, do they? They think, oh, things are just happening day by day and we can vote these guys out. <laughs> so the system we're going into and we are into actually is a, a, literally a control freak society. And here's the thing, that how it works with a control freak society. When it becomes a control freak society and everyone is basically powerless, the petty bureaucrats that they give you, and the police too, by the way, uh, are suddenly given power for the first times in their lives. And they love this power. They go overboard with the power. And petty bureaucrats do as well. But they go home, they don't have any power. The guy can't have an argument with his wife, or the wife can't have an argument with her husband, because it's not allowed to argue. They call them SWAT teams now if, they, if you have an allowed argument. And um, But you get into your job there, and you've got power, and you're authorized to use it. Well, here's what's happening in Britain. And, of course, they do it in this usual British way, which is always do with perversion and sex. And that's what the, it's not that the British asked for this culture. You see, they've never created a culture for a long time. Other people came in and did that for them. But here it says, no sex, which means questions, please, were British. The town hall snoopers get personal and intrusive diversity. You know about diversity laws? Well, you've never believed how far they've gone. When they hand you the questionnaires. I'll read this after this break.
are listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Talking about the flagship, whatever Britain does is copied elsewhere because, you see, if the British folk can handle it, then they can implement it elsewhere and there's no problem either. That's the, that's the testing ground for all craziness of control freakism. And this article here says, outraged, uh, Rachendra Leggy, pictured with her husband Bill, was so angry at a form asking about sexual or uh, her sexual orientation that she shredded it. She says, millions are being bombarded by town halls with intrusive questions about their private lives. People are being routinely grilled about their sex lives, disabilities, religion, ethnicity, and employment. Questionnaires are often sent out unsolicited after someone contacts the local council with a complaint for advice. Some authorities are spending tens of thousands of pounds a year on printing and postage at a time when they're cutting frontline services like no health care. The practice fuels the controversial multi-million pound equality and diversity industry in local government, where hundreds of officials are employed on generous salaries and gold-plated pension schemes. A snapshot survey of councils by the Daily Mail found that around 85% of those that responded sent out forms, saying they sent them out, despite the fact they replicate much of the information gathered in this year's census. Well, what the heck's it been doing? What's it doing in the census in the first place? Questions include whether householders are bisexual, gay, lesbian, or straight, whether they have a long-term illness or disability, and how this affects them, and their ethnicity. Other sections gather information on employment status and age. They're dispatched by councils under requirement to promote and ensure diversity under the Equality Act of 2010, which was brought in by the last Labour government and consolidated numerous legislation, including the Sex Discrimination Act, 1975, the Race Relations Act, 1976, and the Disability Discriminations Act of 1995. And it actually all comes from the United Nations, by the way. Yet there is some considerable confusion over whether the gathering of such information is a legal requirement. Some councils believe it is, yet others have said they did not send out the forms. The mail contacted 30 local authorities and had responses from 14. Of these, 12 said they used the forms to gather information on residents, including Labour-run Luton Borough Council, Tory-led uh, Southend Council and Tower Hamlets Council London, which has an independently elected mayor. If the promotion were applied across England and Wales, it would mean 359 of the 419 local authorities request information from residents. And... Um, Joe O'Connell of the Taxpayers Alliance accused council chiefs of wasting funds on irrelevant and bizarre schemes. Spending reductions have to meet on this uh, is exactly the sort of thing that can be cut with no effects on services, he says. Well, somebody wants to know, don't they? Somebody way above that obviously wants to know. Anyway, people are getting really ticked off about it. And um, the grandmother, Richendra Leggy, says, I really saw red when I read the questions about my sexual orientation. And she got this given to her, sent to her, because she complained about the bin collections for your garbage. You know, you find green police there and bin police and all kinds of police that measure to see if your garbage lid is, is closed properly and stuff. They've got children paid and also you snoop on you. Why do they live there? And I, I'm telling you, why do they live there? I don't know. 
It says, as it happens, I'm happily married to Mr. Leggy, but I can't see what, why, what any of this has to do with the fact that my garbage wasn't taken away. At a time when the council is making cuts, it seems an absolute waste of money to send out things like this. Well, I'll tell you what it is. You see, that this technique works with turning you and your sanity to 180 degrees. And with most people, it puts you in almost a, a, a comatose state. Your, your reasoning is trying to figure things out rationally, and you're getting this odd, weird nonsense that seems pretty mad, which it is actually. Uh, and they're and even your friends, are, well, you've got to answer that. You know, it's important because there are people, you know, who are this and that. But, but she says it's got nothing to do with her garbage, is it? There was even a reply paid envelope. And anyway, they admit that they're intrusive and serve no uh, practical purpose whatsoever. No, it does to somebody at the top, because they want to see if if society that emulates TV and grow up on it, plus all the indoctrination in schools, is creating more of the same kind of stuff they want to see in society. Remember, they don't want breeders at all. They don't want people breeding whatsoever, like Julian Huxley said, and he was the CEO of UNESCO at the United Nations. They would promote all these kinds of things, but they didn't want anybody to breed. But there's the sort of thing that you get when you're into this super post-communist, uh, advanced communism, you might say, society with control freaks, and you put them into bureaucracies. As I say, they go home, they've no power like everyone else, but once they're in their job, they've got the authority to be absolutely mad, and that's what they do. They go mad with it, and they'll... They'll put you in jail if you don't comply or hit you with massive fines. And the cops will come along and say, you didn't answer all the questions to see if you like this and that in bed or you didn't like this and that in bed. All to do with your garbage. It creates a form of madness. And you go along with it. Hmm, I don't think so. I don't think so. I talk about madness too in Australia, along the coast. I mentioned this years ago because the UN said many years ago, long before they came up with the idea of global warming, climate change, carbon footprint, and institutionalized the terms into society. Almost article you read now has it repeated like weapons of mass destruction. This is a technique you see they use. But, but I mentioned years ago that eventually the United Nations wanted no one living around the coastal areas of countries. So what are they doing to tick you off and get you to move? Well, in Australia, higher floors. You have to put a higher floor there. So I guess they want you up in stilts. Lower roofs. It says the town's being shrunk by a climate change anger or angst. It says Port Albert on Victoria's southeast coast is a pretty, as a picture, fishing village is at war with the science of climate change. I saw it, the crap, the crap of climate change. Let's call it what it is. The agenda of it. Residents in the village have been told that because of rising sea levels, by the way, all the, the actual people who didn't use the computer models but went around the world testing them, scientists with sticks, and measuring them against older um, accounts and records, have found that there's no rise in the sea levels at all. But that doesn't matter again. We're not in logic here. We're in an agenda. And any excuse will do. Residents in the village have been told that because of rising sea levels, new housing has to be built on stumps, almost 1.5 metres above ground level, despite the fact that many of the town's original colonial buildings have withstood time and tide on the ground level without ill effect since the 19th century. At the same time, a heritage overlay in the village introduced more than a decade ago prevents roof lines being built higher than the roof of the local pub, which is claimed to be Victoria's oldest continuously licensed hotel. 
Rents have seen land values plummet by 38% in the past year under the weight of the overlays. Investment in the town has stalled, and Port Albert Progress Association resident Donna Eads says that with rising floor levels and roof lines limited by the height of the pub, the next generation of Port Albert residents will have to be pygmies. Yep. This is the agenda, folks. See, it's not meant. We know it makes no sense. But that's what an agenda is. Any lie will do. Always remember that. It's only important that they get all the top people on board uh, announcing the same lie. And through repetition, uh, like many of them said before, repetition, just repetition, that the public start picking up on the terms and then they stop thinking what they really mean anymore. And that's how it works. That's how it works. And this article here too, and all these articles I'll put up the links for at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of this broadcast. The Quiet Coup, the Implementation of Agenda 21. It says people have noticed that the 25 government agencies in Obama's new White House Rural Council and they're questioning what might be the need for all of them. What people may not have noticed yet is that the government agencies in this council are also on other councils, and that's very important. It's called the circles. That's what they call them at the CFR. Some circles overlap, and the ones that overlap are the higher members. They know the higher agenda. These councils, as well as the individual government agencies, are implementing international laws that have taken effect through executive orders. That's orders that don't have to go through Congress. Memorandums of understanding agreements and regulations that most Americans don't even know about. These have bypassed Congress and also seems to have completely bypassed the Constitution. Well, they don't care about the Constitution. Even Bush said that, oh, that piece of old paper. These agencies and councils are forming partnerships, and that's the term. You remember what that term means with members and groups other than the American people have our tax dollars pay for their salaries and for the programs. I mentioned about the, the border of Canada and the U.S. and how the, they've actually, they're merging them together through agreements through the different mayors' associations. So some partnerships sound innocuous, but as you might guess, the devil is in the details. Here's an example. There's a bio-eco working group called bioeco.gov, which at first glance seems to be part of the Department of Interior's U.S. Geological Survey since it's listed as creating the website. But the actual charter has National Science and Technology Council in the heading. The National Science and Technology Council includes 20 of the same agencies that are on the new rural council. This is for the rural cleansing agenda, get you off the land. But with some additional agencies, including the CIA. Isn't that interesting? The CIA is now on this too. It also includes the vice president, cabinet secretaries, heads of agencies, and some White House officials. Participating agencies in the BioEco Working Group are the Departments of Agriculture, Defense, Energy, State, the EPA, NASA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Department of the Interior, U.S. Geological Survey, Department of the Interior, Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health, National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, National Science Foundation, and the Smithsonian Institution. It seems BioEco also wanted to solicit the membership of the National Archives and Records Administration and USAID, AID. In the appendix of the charter signed in 2008 by Anna Bartuska of the U.S. Forest Service under the Department of U.S. Department of Agriculture, Susan Hazeltine of the U.S. Geological Survey under the U.S. Department of Interior, its stated activities of this work group are to, here it gets to it, provide a focal point for coordinating U.S. biodiversity and ecosystem informatics activities with international efforts, that's U.N., and organizations in this and related areas, such as a Global Biodiversity Information Facility, 
the Global Earth Observation System of Systems, the Consortium of the Barcode of Life, CBOL, and the Encyclopedia of Life, the EOL, to ensure compatibility of standards and approaches, facilitate sharing of technologies, and provide for equity, reciprocity in data access and exchange. You might think this is nice, we're sharing information with everybody, then you notice that these organizations seem to map land and catalogue biological resources. And that all came out of the Earth Charter, and part two or three of the Earth Charters to come out next year, remember, and it's going to be a lot worse. You might think this is nice. This is, on the website of the Global Biodiversity Information Facility, which is an, uh, an international organization with many partners, the GBIF's Memorandum of Understanding with its participants, Paragraph 3 states objectives. The purpose of GBIF is to promote coordinate, design, and implement the compilation linking standardization, again, standardization of all laws, digitalization and global dissemination of the world's biodiversity data within an appropriate framework for property rights and due attribution. There's your key there, framework for property rights and due attribution. That's what cooperation and coordination. Their participants attend to encourage cooperation amongst themselves in the implementation of GBIF, and in development of joint work programs in areas of mutual interest with the Secretariat of the Convention on Biological Diversity and other appropriate bodies and initiatives. So it's quite a long article, but it's got the the Convention on Biological Diversity in here and all the other stuff that came out of these private organizations like the Earth Charter Boys at the United Nations, and it's going to get folk off the rural lands, you see because they don't want you living there anymore. You have to all live in the crowded cities up until the year 2050, when magically most of you just either die off or disappear somehow. They never quite stated how that's going to happen, but that was a projection from the Department of Defense's own think tank. Uh, they were just going to disappear somehow. The method is, has not been given to us yet. And I always think, too, of India and Brazil and the up-and-coming emerging nations, the ones where the biggest bankers, moneylenders, have decided they're going to fund them up into a big first-world country. That's how we all came up to first-world countries. When the big boys with money pop into your country, uh, they bring in the same institutions and a central bank, of course, and they get they create your government for you, and then you borrow from their banks. So India is uh, just like China. That's how China was brought up as well, by the way using your tax money as well to fund it. But they found a massive uranium find in Andhra Pradesh, it's called. And it's interesting there, they're going to build more and more nuclear facilities there for them because you see they're going to have factories and all the jobs that they took away from you, just like they did with China through the World Trade Organization. And they're allowed to do that there, though. They can also burn as much coal as they want uh, without any filters on the stacks or anything because it's part of the WTO treaty. They're allowed that for about, I think it's 15 to 20 years, and they can actually extend it for another 20 years or whatever under that trade agreement, just like China. And we, we can't do it, the first world countries who are paying for all this, uh, but they can do it there. We're awfully nice in the West, really. We're awfully, it's just like to Charles Galton there, you know. We're a nice people. We really are a nice people, and um, we're actually even better than the Chinese. I think even the Chinese complain more uh, than we do about how we're, we're stiffed once in a while. 
Study confirms autism boom correlates with aborted fetal uh, DNA in the vaccines. Quite an interesting article, and there's top scientists coming out, and they're agreeing with this. Washington, D.C., April 20, 2010. That was LifeSite News. Uh, a recent study of the Environmental Protection Agency has confirmed 1988 is a change point in the rise of autism disorder rates in the U.S. Actually, it was on the go before that. A date that pro-life leaders say correlates with the introduction of fatal cells for the use in vaccines. It simply took on a new life then, but was already rising with the previous inoculations. While the EPA study does not speculate into the cause of the jump in autism rates and makes no mention of aborted fetal cells, the researchers point out that it's important to determine whether preventable exposure to an environmental factor may be associated with the increase. According to the pro-life group Sound Choice Pharmaceutical Institute, which specializes in vaccine research, that environmental factor may well be the use of aborted fetal cells in the vaccines. The group pointed out on its most recent newsletter in 1998, or 1988, is the same year the U.S. Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices began recommending a second dose of the MMR vaccine, which included cells derived from the tissue of aborted babies. And it's true enough, you, all you have to do with all these mysteries, uh, any mystery at all, is, is to get commonalities. What happened? What changed in the environment? What changed in the food? What changed in the whatever? And you'll find the cause. It's just the same thing when you look at the big globalists and who they are uh, as they plundered the planet. You know, you'll find commonalities there, and that's what detectives do. Well, they found that this is when autism really um, tripled pretty well, and um, it coincided with the, the introduction of uh, fetal cells being used to grow the vaccines on. Then they mush it up in a, a blender, basically, and stick it in you, and that's really all there is to vaccination. Analysis of autism rate data published by SCPI identified three clear change points in the U.S. autism disorder trends from 1981, 1988, and 1995, all of which the group claims roughly correlates with the use of vaccines, Miravax, MMRI2, and chickenpox that were cultivated with the use of tissue from aborted children. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back. You're cutting through the matrix now. There's a caller there, Frank from North Carolina. Are you there, Frank? Oh, yes, I am. Um, I had a, a quick observation, kind of an experience from, uh, I think it was 2008. I was in a police station, local police station, picking up a report for something, and uh, I overheard a police officer, rather tall, blonde uh, police officer. Looked like she'd probably been on the force for a while, but just to uh, relate to so what what a caller mentioned last night, I overheard her, and I we had, I heard, I've heard people talk about this before on your show and whatnot, even even back then. She was uh, talking about all oh, the civilians, so she uh, you know that, that's been going on for a long time, but they they do commonly uh, use that lingo even uh, around you know the, the lowly citizens. Mm-hmm. Yep, and civilians too as part of their training now they get taught that in school. Uh, because the teachers call us civilians, and which obviously means they're not civilians, you see. Uh, it's interesting, they're privatized in a sense, they're, they're militarized for sure, and you understand even when you go into the military, uh, you become a private, you don't belong to, to the public or citizenry anymore, you're, you're, you're actually called a private, a pri- you're a private soldier, that's your first rank, 
And uh, it's the same, much the same with the, the, the cops as well. Um, they now belong to, I guess, whoever their boss is, whoever the paymaster is, like a mercenary. And they belong to a fraternity um, with a uniform. Uniforms are meant to bond people together and, and fight and kill for each other, and no one else, by the way. When troops are in battle, they're not thinking about their families back home at all. They're not thinking about their country. They're thinking about the guys around them uh, getting shot or will we come through as a team just like football. That's what they're thinking. And the psychology of the indoctrination is so old but fantastic to study how to use military techniques to to militarize um, civilians into a police force and change it so much that they, they can't even tell the difference. If you were to ask them the question, you see a, a stunned look on their face. They've never thought about it themselves. But what they want to do, because they're pretty well powerless in society, just like the lower-level bureaucrats who send you all the questionnaires about your sex life, um, and they want you to answer, or they'll fine you or imprison you, uh, what, what they find is that they're given authority when they've got that uniform on, and they go overboard with it because they have no power in, in civilian society when they're off duty. And, and this is the, the society they're bringing in on purpose. But uh, I, I saw it years ago, even in Canada, in Canada and the States, the ordinary cop changed his uniform overnight into the combat boots uh, and the, the pants, the military pants and the belts and so on, right down to the black tie, black shirt, black everything. And there was an article in, in a, a newspaper in Canada It says, you might notice that your, your local cops uh, will be walking the streets in, in, in groups of four. This is to let the citizenry become accustomed to their new uniform, the smart uniform, they said. Well, you saw these Jedi knights, you know, walking across along the local Spud Town, it was, Potato Town. And, um, and sure enough, they were, they were all smiling. I think they were models, actually, because the cops don't generally smile at anybody. And, um, and I looked around me, and what astonished me, what really astonished me, was I was the only person looking at them. Everybody else would look past them and, and didn't give them a second. The people are unconscious. They're absolutely unconscious of the changes that happen, significant changes, because when police become a paramilitary organization with uh, combat gear on, uh, you better remember, combat gear is meant to go to war with, and those guys are there to go to war on you. But you're absolutely right, we're all civilians. They're a somebody or a nobody, that's what they tell them. What side do you want to join? From Hamish myself, Ontario, Canada, as good nights, I mean your God or your gods go with you.